Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. Thank you for joining me for episode 45 of the Impact Makers Podcast. Whether you work for a corporate brand or you're a personal brand, we all have something in common. In order to persuade people to buy from us, work with us, or tell others about us, we have to be able to create powerful messages and stories that connect with our intended audience and position us for success. So wouldn't it be nice if there was some type of framework that could help us to choose a focus and format to tell our story so we could create content that serves our mission in the best possible way? Well, thankfully, there is a framework, and my guest today literally wrote the book on it. Melanie Diesel is a keynote speaker, award-winning branded content creator, and a lifelong storyteller on a mission to share the power of creating compelling and credible content with others. Melanie is the founder and chief content officer of StoryFuel, a company that teaches marketers, creators, and organizations how to tell better brand stories, and she's the author of the best-selling book, The Content Fuel Framework, How to Generate Unlimited Story Ideas. I've enjoyed reading Melanie's book and have found the 10 by 10 content fuel framework helpful as I've had to rethink how I connect with my community and share my message while speaking on stages around the world is not an option. In our conversation today, Melanie shares how her experience as a journalist and content strategist for some of the most well-known companies and brands in the world was helpful to her when she decided to start and market her own business and how she's now on a mission to help others create content that they can be proud of and will get their messages heard. Well, good morning, Melanie. Welcome to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to chatting with you about your background today. So why don't you tell us about yourself? Absolutely. So I'm Melanie Diesel, and I like to say that I've been a lifelong storyteller. And that's kind of taken a couple different forms, just at different phases of life that we all go through. So I started by studying journalism. I loved the idea that I could kind of become a temporary expert on a subject that I would be given permission to go out and learn and talk to experts, collect information, and then have the privilege of sharing and teaching that information, you know, with others. And so I did that for a while. You know, I, I loved that whole industry. I loved really investigative reporting was kind of my my favorite because I got to really go deep on particular subjects. And the other thing I loved was doing profiles of people, you know, really kind of putting myself in someone's shoes and getting to talk about what their life is like and share that with others. But I had a hard time staying employed in that particular field. You know, there was a lot of downsizing of newsrooms. And so those are the kind of roles that are sometimes seen as superfluous in, you know, in preference for things like news, weather, sports, you know, some of the more, the more timely stuff. So uh, I was looking to figure out how do I take this, these skills that I have and put them to use in a way that is, is still beneficial for an audience and is still helpful for me. And so I found that there was need for these kinds of skills in the marketing world. And so I became a, a brand storyteller, if you will, shortly after that. And I've since worked in a number of different publications, including Huffington Post. Uh, I was the first brand content editor at the New York Times. And then I worked at Time Incorporated as well. Uh, In all those cases, setting up sort of brand newsrooms where brands would come to us as a publication and say, we want to tell branded stories in this environment on your website, you know, in your in your pages. Uh, How do we go about doing that? How do we tell our story in a way that's going to feel natural and still provide some value in a way that's natural for your platform, for your audience. So I was sort of an in-between, you could say, between 
more of the, the news style storytelling and the brands that wanted to work with us. And then in the last few years, since I set up Story Fuel, which is the company that I run now, we primarily focus on the brand side. So we've taken that, that one step further, gone from journalism to being in the middle of those two worlds. And now we're more on the brand side, helping individuals, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and, and you know larger businesses as well, figure out how they can tell stories more like journalists. So we really kind of float between those worlds, uh, still, still storytelling, uh, but hopefully helping other people come to love and fall in love with storytelling as much as we do. Yeah. So did you, you know, I guess uh, over the years, everything evolves and with marketing and advertising, we've kind of gone from that, you know, here's our product and here's all the things about our product and here's what it does. And we've moved into storytelling is the darling now. Yeah. But it sounds like you were kind of at the beginning of that, that, you know, you were, you were talking about storytelling for brands before, everybody was talking about storytelling for brands. So, so did you, how did, was that because of your journalist background that you kind of saw that was what was needed or how did you kind of see that? I always like to be fully transparent and say that, you know, at the time I was not a future telling magician of some kind. It was totally luck and a very smart recruiter that I was working with actually. So I had been in search of, you know, still looking for journalism jobs. That was really where I wanted to end up. But I was, like I said, I was finding that there there weren't as many positions and I was having trouble finding newsrooms that were, you know, funded well enough to have those kind of roles. And so this recruiter said, you know, look, there's there's these kind of jobs. They're more on the marketing side, more on the business side, but, you know, it'll get you into a news, you know, it'll get you into the right kind of organization and maybe you can make the transition, you know, if things change. And so I took a role and, and this is, you know, to your point about we weren't really talking about brand storytelling. The first role I had, I was a native advertising product manager. Now, that's a horrible title that doesn't really tell you much about what I did at all. I, I was a content strategist. It was exactly content strategy, but we didn't really yet have a language around all of these things. And so they saw me as, okay, this is a person who manages something we sell, so they must work under operations and they must be a product manager. But really day to day, you know, a, a brand like Citibank would come and say, look, we want to talk about progress being made in cities. We wanted to have a conversation around ur- urban innovation and urban progress. And it was my job, you know, if, if they were my client to say, okay, well, here's the kinds of stories we can tell. I found this program in Detroit where they're turning this into that. And, you know, I found this bike share program and I found this program where they're putting, you know, solar roofs on, you know, high schools and, you know, things like that. And so it was really brand reporting in a lot of ways. It was the same kind of skills and we were doing content strategy. We just didn't yet understand that that's more of an editorial function in a lot of ways than it is sort of a product management function. Hmm. So is there a difference or much of a difference between how you approach kind of that storytelling beginning to create content, whether it's for a brand or for a personal brand? Are the processes the same about how you approach that? I think the language we use around it is a little bit different. You know, you might not, as a personal brand, talk about campaigns or initiatives or things like that, you know. But I think the tactics that we're using and the strategies that we that we use that guide those tactics are, are often very, very similar. And so, you know, if you want to break it down to its most basic parts, we'd be asking questions about what's important to you, whether that's you as an organization or you as an individual. What do you want to convey to your audience about what it is that you do? You know, so understanding your your message and who you are, you know, and then, and then what are the things that you're doing that give you some sort of timeliness about those messages? So, 
for a brand that might be a campaign, an event, a product launch, you know, some, some sort of big new thing that's happening. For an individual, it may be that you're launching a new service or you've had some life change that you want to talk about. You've, I don't know, you've moved, you've gotten married, whatever the case may be, that's part of your personal brand. You could view that in many ways the same way we would view a, a product launch or a campaign. You know, it was funny. My uh, my husband and I had we had a baby about almost a year ago at this point, and both of us are entrepreneurs. And so we had joked that this was you know our biggest collaboration yet. That this was you know sort of a a co branded product launch in a way. You know, as we thought about how do we share this with the people who are special to us in our lives, it was easy for both of us to see that you know this event in a personal life does have a lot of parallels to these major events that brands view as campaigns. You know, right. Interesting. So you spent some time kind of telling stories, brand stories in organizations like the New York Times and the Huffington Post and others. What caused you to eventually make the transition or what was your thought process in making the transition to going out on your own? It was one of those things that happened slowly and then all at once. I think what I found is in every each of those organizations where I was brought in, I was usually being given some sort of role to to serve as an editorial conscience, if you will. I was the person with sort of a journalism and communications background being brought in for the purpose of either setting up this kind of brand storytelling team or overseeing, growing this kind of brand storytelling team. And what I found is that I was doing my job well. And when I did my job well and trained people, there wasn't much to do, you know, after a certain point in time. And so, you know, I was brought into HuffPost. I was one of three people there. By the time I hit a year, we were a 12-person team. We had brought in millions of dollars in, in you know, deals and we're working with massive brands, you know, uh, General Mills, Chipotle, you know, Johnson & Johnson. We had all these amazing brand programs. And then the New York Times brought me in. Same thing. I was the first full-time hire for, you know, first editor of brand content there. And by the time I was there a year, we were a 40-person team and we were bringing in tens of millions of dollars in these different programs. And we were telling stories for companies like GE and, you know, all these amazing brands we got to work with, Netflix, you know, really fun brands. But I quickly would find myself, well, okay, we've built the products, we've hired the right team, we're chugging along, things are working well, we're making revenue, we're growing what is there left for me to do now? You know, there's no new products for me to create. There's no, the sales team has been fully trained on how to sell these things. And the same thing kept happening to me. And so I realized that while I look like a job hopper, what I actually am is a consultant and that it's probably best for me to work with organizations like these publications or with individual brands or or individuals on more of a short-term basis rather than going and helping them one at a time. Wouldn't it be better if I could choose the brands that I'm working with or the organizations I'm working with and work with them over a period of time so that I could help more people uh, sort of and distribute that knowledge in a different way. And it also gave me the freedom to be able to not work with those brands who I felt weren't doing it in maybe the most ethical way or the way that is best serving the audience. You know, they were maybe self-serving and not really looking to provide value. And it also gave me the freedom to do things like you know, go on podcasts without having to get approvals from 14 layers of legal and and things like that. You know, I wanted to be able to share this stuff freely, both what I was working on, you know, to the degree that any NDAs would allow, but also just to share the educational side of it in a, in a more self-guided way. You know, it allowed me to write a book and speak at conferences and, and blog and guest posts and just really try to get the message out there in a way that I felt would help more people, help more stories come to life and help more people feel fall in love with storytelling. Sure. How many years now have you been out on your own? 
So it's almost five years now. I mean, it's it's such a strange time warp between, you know, having a baby and then dealing with this pandemic that has really shifted the way we all work. So, you know, time seems to be moving in a, in a strange uh, way lately. But yeah, we're coming up on on five years since I, I set out on my own. It's been it's been a wild a wild five years for sure. Yeah. So you've done a lot in that five years, but I kind of want to go back to when you started. So you're coming out of this. Yeah. You've realized you're a consultant. I love the way you kind of frame that up. <laughs> and now you're going to start your own business, helping brands tell their stories. How did you start your business telling the story of your business? What were the things you focused on in the beginning to let the world know that? that story fuel or what it was called at the time uh, yeah. was a thing. So yeah, we were, we were actually not yet called story fuel. And so I will fully admit that, you know, I did what a lot of entrepreneurs do, which is like, I need to start a business. I hear I need an LLC. I've got to fill out this form right now. So I'll make something up on the spot. And so I think we were, we were M diesel media. So it was just my name with an LLC attached to the end so that we could, you know, start making things happen. Obviously, we saw the need to better tell our story, rebranded and became Story Fuel, which is a lot better at talking about what it is that we do, helping people find, you know, find their story and, and create better content. One of the things that was really important for me is I wanted to talk about the experience that I had and really frame it with my background as a journalist that I was coming at it from that perspective. I think at least for me, the key for differentiation, I knew that there were a lot of people out there who were talking about branding, talking about telling your story, talking about sort of the science of storytelling in a more holistic sense. And I didn't want to go in those lanes. I didn't want to step on those toes. I really wanted to plant my flag and say, I'm going to take what I learned as a journalist, take what works well in the world of journalism and apply that to marketing and more branded communications. Because I think that's where there's a lot of learning to be done. That's where there's a lot of easy ways for us to improve the quality of what we're doing without it being this gigantic monumental change in what we do. It's these small incremental changes that take an uncompelling and you know boring and, and heavily branded story and these small changes that can really make it something that's interesting and that people want to read or engage with and share. And so I wanted to focus on, on that approach. So a lot of what I did was talk about my experience in, in the journalism world. I talked about some of the case studies that I had worked on when I was at the New York Times, because that name tends to really be associated with journalism. So more so than maybe some of the stuff I did at Huffington Post, which while very interesting, a lot of fun brands doesn't necessarily you know fit in with that storyline, that positioning of saying we're taking that journalist perspective. So you know, I tried to, to go on podcasts to do guest posts you know, I've always been transparent with people that I really, when I talk about the content stuff that we need to do, please do as I say and not as I do. My focus is not on creating a ton of content for myself because I'm really focused on helping others do that. So I'm always happy to provide links and portfolios to the clients I'm working with, but I would never, you know, skirt the work that I'm doing with a client to put out my own blog post in an ideal world where I'm not also caring for a baby and, you know, doing all these other things. Sure. But my priority will always be helping clients. And so, you know, please don't look at, you know, my Instagram and, and think that, that that's representative of our work. We really, I'm happy to share the work that we do with clients. That's a lot more representative of the strategies and the tactics we use. Interesting. So 
that was going to be kind of my next question. You know, what were, how did you, how did you get out there and get people to become aware of your business? I know a lot of it was your reputation and maybe your prior clients, but it wasn't, it doesn't sound like through blogging or creating content to draw people to you necessarily, or was it a mix of all the, you know, a lot of people will start their business and they're like, well, I need to start blogging. I need to build social media profiles. I need to help the world see who I am so that they will then see what I can do. As you mentioned, you know, what you're doing for clients, it sounds like maybe you skipped over that step a little bit. Is that correct? (laughs) Well, I think that uh, I see the value of it. Obviously, that's what we do with clients. I think I was in a really blessed position in that I had already been active on social media. I had already seen the appeal of building a personal brand as I had seen many journalists do. You know, seeing that transition from I'm just a name in the newspaper to I'm a person whose work you follow from publication to publication. And so I was already active on Twitter. I already had an Instagram account. I had a Facebook page, you know, Those things weren't necessarily a huge priority or a focus of my time, but they existed. And so I wasn't, you know, avoiding any of those things. I saw the value of them. Um, But I think I, like I said, I was very blessed that I had already been doing some speaking podcast appearances, guest blogging and things as a representative of my organizations. And so I had a lot of connections that I could call on to say, hey, you know, I, you had me on the show two years ago when I was with the Times. I've gone out. Oh, now I'd love to come on and have a different conversation about this topic, which you haven't covered, you know, from this particular perspective before. So I was able to kind of do a lot of follow up work on that. Same thing for speaking. You know, I had relationships with event managers from when I had been, you know, speaking on behalf of my clients and my teams. So I was able to to kind of continue that work but on my own. And so I know that's a position that many people aren't, you know, lucky enough to be in. So I'm blessed to have had that jumping off point. And I think a big part of it was really taking what I was doing on behalf of the organization to our earlier point about how similar personal brands are and just transitioning a lot of those activities to do them on behalf of myself. And so, you know, that groundwork very luckily had already been laid. Sure. So you mentioned speaking and that you had done that both in your role in the corporate world. And I love what you said about, you know, not having to get approvals from five layers of people to be <laughs> on this podcast, because yeah. I see that as well. You know, you, I just want to have a conversation with you and let me ask my boss to do and ask legal and then get written permission. And, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a, a challenge for some people in organizations just to share their own story. Yeah. But tell me a little bit about your speaking journey, you know, both how you use that to build your business and how you use it today to help clients and others. So, I mean, I guess I could say that my speaking career started with the first speech that I gave, but I want to back it up a little bit because I think there was a series of events that brought me to that point. So when I first got to the New York times, like I said, I was the first full-time hire and our sales team was really used to selling, you know, squares and rectangles, as we would say, right. They're used to selling ads in the online and ads in print. So to educate them about how to sell content and storytelling and talk about how we evaluate content, which is very different than how we evaluate standard ads, you know, it required a lot of FaceTime with them. And in the early days, rather than trying to teach every one of our, at that point, I think 300 or so salespeople across the country, how to do that individually, I would sort of go along with them on their meetings. So I was doing a lot of client pitches, just coming in for my part, you know, they would talk about most of the things and they'd say, and now to talk about content and they'd sort of throw it to me. Right. So I did that for several months and I found that I really enjoyed it because I was just talking about what I loved. It didn't scare me. It didn't feel like public speaking because I was just saying, Hey, here's a cool idea we came up with. I'd love to make this with you. Right. So sort of fast forward a few months. And what happened is 
another member of the New York Times had been invited to speak at a conference and they weren't able to. So they sort of handed the opportunity to someone else who wasn't interested, who handed the opportunity to someone else. And somehow it sort of fell down the ladder and ended up on my desk. And the line of thinking was, well, Melanie does all those client presentations all the time. She does a couple of those a week. She can just go and talk about the storytelling stuff, no problem. So I went and I actually presented someone else's research. Like I didn't talk about content marketing. I had to give what topic that they had requested initially. So I was presenting our research and developments team's research on social sharing and the psychology of social sharing. So I had to teach myself their material and go down and present on behalf of the company. And so that none of that would have, would have happened if I hadn't been doing sort of these smaller incidences of public speaking up to that point, these client presentations and things. And so once I did that and I got home from that, I realized like, I really, really loved that. That was so much fun. You know, it was so, I had, I think it was 200 people in a room, which, you know, is kind of scary if you haven't done that before, but it was exhilarating and I, I really enjoyed it. And I remember thinking, this was really fun. I'd love to do this sharing my own material, like not just be a vessel passing along this information, but actually be able to share some of the things that are important to me. And like I said, I didn't really have a pathway to do that. I continued to present on behalf of my team for a few years and into my next job. But as soon as I knew that I was thinking about going forward, I actually, you know, I took some online courses. I really started to research and look into the business of speaking, how to set yourself up effectively, because I wasn't going to have the PR team and the legal team and all these folks behind me anymore. And so I was able to, to really slowly do that over time, you know, set myself up for conferences that were happening in the future, knowing I would no longer be employed by that point so that I could make that transition a little bit easier for myself. Yeah. So as a speaker, do you speak primarily about one topic that maybe you customize a bit for an audience or do you have several talks that you give? So I think it's a it's a combination of those things, actually. So when I started out, I really had the one talk that I was giving. I, I sort of came up with my own, as many of us do, your own like system or acronym or, you know, the five part process, some sort of framework that you come out with. So I had that and I gave that talk almost like a roadshow. I just kind of gave that at a whole bunch of different events over the course of several months. And then what happens is folks come back to you and want you to speak at a similar event and they say, well, we need something new. So I did it, you know, I came up with a new talk, a new framework and gave that for several months. And so what I've ended up with now is sort of a tool belt full of the these talks that I've given many times in the past. They're all very similar in terms of their core, you know, messaging is around content and how to use it more effectively. So I've given talks about how specific types of companies can use it more effectively, such as healthcare companies, you know, or I actually did a gardening conference and a series of related events. So I've talked about that, but then I've done, you know, more niche tactical ones. So I've talked about how to repurpose your content. I've talked about how to come up with content ideas in the last, you know, th this year I've done quite a few how to adapt your content during times of crisis, right? With with all the the COVID changes that many businesses are facing. So it really is at the core all about teaching folks how to use their content more effectively for whatever message they're trying to get out and, and hopefully make it easier, make them feel more confident in their ability to do that. But the the direct title that it may take, you know, sort of adapts based on the particular industry they're in or the type of event that it is. Sure. So during this process, while you're out talking to people about content and you mentioned framework, somewhere along the way, uh, you kind of came up with a content fuel framework. Was that something that evolved 
through this process where you're like grabbing, okay, that worked really well. That makes sense. I know I've used that. And then you came up eventually with this 10 by 10 kind of framework or how did that framework evolve? So, you know, I, I actually, I tell this story in the acknowledgements, the very back of the book, but this started at the very beginning in a totally unexpected way. I was scheduled to speak at a conference in Berlin and I'm based in, in New York. So it's quite a haul, you know, for me to get over there. And they reached out to me. I was on the board of this particular organization. So I was fairly involved with the event process. They reached out and said, look, we've had an emer- a health emergency with another speaker. So we now need you to do both keynotes for both days. You can't just do the one. You've got to do both. And that means you can't give the same material because it's not a breakout session, right? It's going to be the same audience. And this was I'm not, I think it was maybe four days before the event. And I had, because I had spoken in years past, everything in my arsenal had been used. Like I needed new material for a keynote happening in a few days. So I said, well, I've got this idea that I've been kicking around. It's not fully formed, I don't think, but I want to share it and we'll see how it goes. Since we're last minute here, let's see what happens. And it was basically the first seed that grew into this framework. The idea was I knew that content had just these two elements of focus, that the content is about something, and it has a format in that it comes to life in various ways. And so what I gave was truthfully, probably not the best representation of the the idea as it is now, but I did the best I could with just a few days to pull it together and presented a version of that, that people could learn. Now, I was not super proud of it. You know, as anyone who's a speaker knows, you, you work hard, you want things to be polished and perfect. But strangely, the response to that talk was much stronger than the response to the you know, I was actually brought in to give. And that signaled to me that like, there's something here. This is really connecting for people. It's helping them see new things. I'm getting more emails about that particular topic and theme follow-ups that, you know, I'm not getting related to the other talk. And so I really set myself to dedicate time to working it through more, refining it, talking about the, the ways that the categories were named. It wasn't a 10 by 10 at that point. It was a smaller matrix. And through really looking at those categories, it became the 10 by 10 grid that it is today. And so it was a series of future presentations over time that it got refined and turned into uh, at first a workshop, then you know a full keynote, and then ultimately the book, The Content Field Framework, How to Generate Unlimited Story Ideas. Yeah. So tell me more about the book process. You know, at at what point did you say it's time to put this in a book? You know, I felt a little bit like a fraud, if I'm being totally honest, because I had gotten so far away from writing now that I was teaching it that I wasn't doing it so much anymore. Like I said, I wasn't keeping up my own blog the way I wanted to be. I wasn't doing writing. And and that's really what I fell in love with to begin with, right? And I had felt like I was so far from that. I was missing that in my life. And so I was trying to think of what my next writing project would be. And I, I, I don't even remember really why it why it came to me that that would be it. I think truthfully, I started writing a different book on a different topic first and thinking like, I really have to just write something. And it became clear to me that this is not a first book. This is not what my audience needs right now. They need this much more practical guide first. And so luckily, you know, I, I alluded to this earlier, but uh, my, my daughter was due in August. And so I knew if I wanted to get this book done, I needed to finish writing it before she was born or else that was going to be a major disruption to the timeline. So I really worked hard uh, over the course of it. So it, it was early to mid 2019 to get that book totally done before she arrived so that it could go into other hands and get, uh, get ready for, for its debut in early 2020. 
So what was the publishing process like? The I always hear stories from authors, you know, many who I respect yeah. about, you know, I wrote, I wrote 75,000 words and I sent it to the editor and it came back 40,000 of them were gone <laughs> and I had to start over. So how did that process go for you? Yeah. So the process was a little bit easier for me, I think, once the content was done. And there, there were two reasons for that. First is that the structure was really based on an existing framework. And so that's the concept that was sold was this 10 by 10. You know, each of those factors has its own small chapter. It's a very easy read. There's just a small chapter about each of those. And so there wasn't a lot from a structural perspective that things didn't need to be rearranged. Like they were pre-named categories. It was existing intellectual property. Uh, and that idea was was bought into, right? So there wasn't any major rewrites, which I know sometimes you can face if there's less of a clear structure from the beginning. The other thing is we were bound by time. So, you know, it was never going to be a, a 70,000 word book. Didn't have time to, to be quite that big. But the other reason is I worked with a hybrid publisher. And so for anyone who's not familiar in that space, basically, you know, a, a hybrid publisher is somewhere in between self-publishing and traditionally publishing. So I worked with a team that, you know, really they were, they were working for me more so than in the typical publishing environment. You know, I chose them. They, they liked my concept. We decided to work together. And so I retain all the rights to my own IP. So they were helping me from a production standpoint, you know, copy editing and building things. They did do content editing as well to help clarify things. But, you know, it wasn't so much that they were in control and giving me final approval on the idea. I really wanted to retain that IP to make sure I could continue to do workshops and create, you know, I created a companion workbook for it. So, you know, that was the right mix for me. I think had I worked with a traditional publisher, you know, they may have come back and said, look, we need it to be an eight by eight. That's what's in right now. No one wants 10 by 10 matrices. And maybe I would have had to totally restructure it, you know, but I think I was really, again, really, really lucky to find a team that was already, they liked the concept to begin with and they wanted to help me bring that concept to life rather than trying to shift it into something else. Sure. So we're recording this late May, you know, depending on when people are listening to this, it's a post-COVID world. Your (laughs) book came out a couple of months before this and now you've been kind of quarantined. You live in New York City and kind of, you know, an epicenter of a lot of things are happening there. So how has the book launch and promotion book tour process gone for you both before and during and and currently where we're at? You know, it's a a really interesting thing. There's obviously nothing you can do to predict something like what we all went through in in February and March and and April, right? There's, There's no way to know that that's coming. That being said, I strongly recommend not launching a book <laughs> in a pandemic. <laughs> if you have a choice, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, if, you, if you have the choice, you know, it it was obviously not, didn't play out the way we hoped it would. You know, there was a vision for a multi-city book tour. There were book signings that were supposed to happen. Uh, and my book came out at the very end of February, on February 24th. And as many of you know, you know, depending on where you live, quarantine started pretty much the first week of of. March. So there was very little time for any of that. I did manage to get one event in uh, that was small, local here, and it was sub 25 people. So it was, a, you know, it was even then we knew it was not the kind of thing where you could have a big gathering. And so that changed a lot of my plans, you know, and, and truthfully, it also, for those of us in the speaking space, many of us know, I mean, events were just totally canceled or moved online, in which case a book signing doesn't work in quite the same way. 
I had, you know, I had 20 or so events that were supposed to be buying books or, you know, having a book sale book, you know, tables for signing set up there. And those were all canceled as well. So it definitely changed the whole approach for us. And I think one of the things that I did as an act of self-love, I don't know uh, whatever version of this may be appropriate for all of you, but I decided not to actually look at the data and see how many books were sold at all during March, because I realized that any goals and expectations I had set were not based on the reality that I was in. And so I was 100% going to be disappointed and I didn't need that, right? I knew it was bad. I didn't need to know how bad, like I could just ignore it and you know approach it once I had a, a clearer idea of what the world would look like. So what I did do was try to focus on the things I had control over. So uh, I tried to do on a lot of podcasts as much as I could, you know, in relevant spaces where I could still reach an audience. We made sure that the ebook was up and available and we discounted the price of that so that people who weren't able to get the shipping could still get a hold of that. One thing that I did that I, I didn't realize it was smart, but I guess it turned out to be smart in, in retrospect, uh, when Amazon started shifting their priorities for shipping, many of you might remember you would wait three weeks, a month, two or more, right? To have something non-essential delivered. Uh, books were part of that. And so folks were telling me, hey, I'm seeing you know six weeks wait time to get your book, which is not a great thing when your book is first coming out. I ordered a bunch of books directly from the printer to my house. And I ordered the supplies to print labels. You know, I found out how much the media mail costs and I bought in bulk the, the special rate that you get for sending a book. Uh, and I, I mean, I had like a little factory set up here a little bit. So if people wanted to order a signed book from me, they could order it directly on my website. And obviously I only had limited inventory. I couldn't do this for thousands or hundreds of books, but um, it allowed me to still get the book out to people to be able to, to sign a book, put it in an envelope and send it off to them, you know, with a, a mail pickup. So I just tried to find little ways that I, that I could have some control over that to make sure that the content was getting out there. You know, I mentioned the workbook briefly. We, we had planned to have it be a physical printed workbook. That wasn't going to happen. Those, those kinds of supply chains and, and priorities were, were not the same anymore. And so we ended up doing it digitally. We just threw it up on the website as a PDF. You could download it and fill it in. You could print it. That was how we could get it out to people as quickly as possible and, and make it useful. So you know, just trying to adapt plans as best I could to, to fit the new digital world that we're in. Yeah, I love several things that you said there, but the part about not looking at the the sales stats, that's yeah, that's very wise on on <laughs> your behalf, both as yeah. you said, for self-care, but also to keep you focused on forward progress. Yeah. And doing things like making the workbook digital and finding mm -hmm. ways to ship from your house. If you'd been bogged down and oh it's oh today I only sold, you know, however many copies, then that could have taken you off that track. And and yeah. I was one of those people. I wanted a book in my hands and the Amazon shipping was like weeks and I so I, I ordered the Kindle, which is fine. <laughs> yeah. But even like before this morning before we got, I wanted to look back through some of my notes. And I'm like, I wish I had my book with my things underlined, you know, because now I'm like poking through the Kindle going, well, yeah. what is this about that? So 10 by 10 framework. And, and you kind of alluded like the, the, if you'd gone traditional publishing, they might've said eight by eight is the thing. Did you, you know, often as a speaker even, and, and I'm sure you, you might maybe with brands that, you know, you talk about three to four points or something like that. Mm -hmm. So you've got a yeah. big framework, which can generate a lot of ideas. Um, you know, tell me a little bit about how you tell people both through your book and, and through your keynotes and the work you do about, how to choose maybe one or two of those frameworks yeah. to tell your story. So one of the things that I talk about 
you know, as often as possible is, you know, the goal of this 10 by 10 matrix is not to force you to create a hundred pieces of content. That's not practical or, you know, necessary for almost any of us. But the idea is that most of us fall into a comfort zone where we're creating the same thing over and over again. And that's why we feel stuck or we feel that we lack the creative capacity to come up with ideas at all or come up with new ideas, right? So the idea is really just to make you aware of the possibilities that are within your full creative capacity that you know you, you know and understand that you can create content about people, content about data, content about history, right? That's not a crazy concept. It's nothing new. But maybe you hadn't considered telling that particular story through the lens of data or through the lens of history. So it's, again, not that this stuff is earth shattering. It's just a list of options so that when you're feeling stuck or you're feeling like I've got nothing, here's a place for you to start. Have you considered focusing on some of these 10 things? Uh, and same thing for the formats. You know, many of us are drawn to, I'm, I'm a writer. And so if given the option, I'll hop on and write a blog post or type something out on my phone before anything else. But there's a lot of situations where creating content with audio, video, live video, a map, a quiz, there are so many ways to bring a story to life. And if I'm not considering some of those other options, I may not be telling my stories in the most effective way. So by having this list of 10 potential formats and, you know, through the book, sharing examples and, and best practices, you know, things to consider when you're using those formats and focuses, it really just gives you a whole, you know, new set of options to consider so that you can make sure you're you're creating a story, a piece of content that serves your mission in the best possible way. I think we've all sat through a video that should have been a blog post or should have been an infographic because it wasn't compelling visually or the individual is maybe just not comfortable or well-suited to speaking on video. And so making sure that you're asking those critical questions, you know, what is my content about? And then asking what's the best way to bring this piece of content to life, you know, by pairing those things together, you wind up with not only hopefully more diverse content because you're considering new options, but hopefully more compelling content because you're pairing the two more strategically. Do you have a particular success story, either of your own or with a client where you've gotten someone to stretch out of their comfort zone that's created a really unique and powerful piece of content because they picked a different place on the grid than where they were comfortable? Yeah. So there's a, a client that I work with. I can't share the name, unfortunately, but it's a, a client in the financial space, we'll say. They, they work in finance. And um historically had been doing a lot of white papers, you know, really dense written content that was often, you know, quarterly reports, you know, things you download and, and most often, like, let's be honest, we don't actually read them. You download them with the best of intentions and then they don't, they don't do what you want them to do. And as a brand, they're not doing what they want either because people aren't engaging. And so the conversation was around how can we consider different ways to bring this data to life. And that conversation turned it into, let's talk, instead of doing the data through written content, let's talk about the data visually. Let's create infographics. And the infographics were much simpler, right? They weren't quite as long as some of those white papers or reports were. Many times they were several infographics that had the different subsections. They were much more visually compelling. They were much more engaged with on social media. They were shared more widely than most of us would share a white paper or a quarterly report. And so just by having that small shift in asking what's the best way to bring this data to life, the answer in that case was let's try an infographic. And that wound up being much more compelling for them, driving much better results. The information, the, the story they were telling was, was really the same. They just needed to tell it through a different format to create the kind of results that they wanted. 
So what are your thoughts on kind of where where people should be focusing in general? Obviously, you know, yeah. you have a whole framework that I think is very <laughs> helpful for people to think differently about telling their stories. But, you know, kind of looking back over the last few years, maybe from when you started your own business, I've been in yeah. business for myself for 10 years. And, you know, 10 years ago, it was about blogging. You know, it was the new thing and it was a way to really get noticed and to tell your story. And I made some lifelong friends because I got to know them through their blogs. And then yeah. social media media came on and it was like people moved off of blogs and took comments off their blogs because it became about social shares and this, that, and the other. And then it was, and I think video is always with, you know, been a, been a constant, but it seems yeah. like over the last year plus, it's been the experts are pushing us to live video. Where do you, do you see for a person who really wants to, person or company who really yeah. wants to get their message out in a broad form, have people connect with it, understand what the value proposition is, do you recommend they really go all in on something in particular or is that going to be unique for everyone? I think it's going to be unique for everyone. And I know sometimes that's kind of a cop-out answer. It's like not not a real answer, but... I think there's a couple of things you want to consider. I think everyone is comfortable on an individual level creating certain types of content. I call it a first content language. It's the place where you feel safe, where you're productive. For me, that's writing. For you, it might be uh, audio, right? Because of the, the format we're choosing here. Um, other people are, are naturals on video, the folks you see on YouTube or TikTok, right? I think everyone has that inclination, that place where they're going to be most productive. You have to take that into account because if I'm being evaluated as a writer on my ability to push out YouTube videos, then I'm going to fail. That's not a place where I am productive and safe. I can absolutely see the strategy of it, but my skills aren't suited to doing that consistently at a quality level. So for me, I'm going to lean toward the areas where I could use my skills. I'm going to create written content. Now that written content might become the script for a video that someone else can create because they have those skills. It might become the script for audio content or the, the prompt that we use for a conversation. It might get turned into an infographic by a designer, but I'm going to focus on the place where I can really apply my skills most efficiently. So I think that's different for everyone. I think the next thing you want to take into account is your audience also has a preferred way of consuming content. So if I'm writing all day long and my audience only listens to podcasts, I'm going to have a problem. There's going to be a gap there between what I'm creating and they want to consume. So you want to also ask, where is your audience? What do they want to consume? And see if there's a way to bridge that gap. So I gave the example before. If I'm a writer, my audience wants audio, then maybe I write the script and read it because that's going to make me feel most comfortable. It's going to help me close that gap. Maybe I write the topics and someone else like you who's more comfortable can have the podcast conversations and we do that together. We team up. Uh, there's ways where you can close that gap. But those are the two things you want to consider is really like your first content language as an individual or an organization, and then the audience's preferred way of consuming that content. The only thing I will say is if you've got to create one and you really are getting to choose, maybe you have resources or multiple people at your disposal, I do recommend going with video or live video as sort of your super format. And the reason for that is you can break that down into so many other formats. So if you're having, a, you know, creating a video, that video has audio. So you can separately use that audio for other projects. You can get a transcript of that audio and use the text as show notes or a blog post or a caption or description. You know, you have the visuals of what are on screen, which can be turned into stills and you have those images for social. So if you're really trying to sort of combine all your resources and get the most bang for your buck, 
video is a good place to create as your super format because it breaks down most easily into the other stuff. Great advice. Who should be buying your book? If you are someone who has had content creation heaped onto your plate, maybe that's a new responsibility for you at a small organization, then it's going to be incredibly helpful for you to, to figure out how to make strategic use of content. If you are an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, a thought leader, or expert of some kind who is now having to market yourself through content, which many of us are, then this is also going to be really helpful for you in terms of figuring out what kind of content it's going to be most helpful. It's going to be most strategic. It's going to help you share your message with the audience you need to. So basically, if you're you're a creator, marketer, hybrid of some kind, I think you'll find something incredibly useful in the book that will make you feel more confident in your ability to tell your story. Sure. So what does the future hold for you? Or what are you thinking as a, I mean, I'm sure <laughs> as a person who advises and consults with brands, now's a, a really good time that they should be reaching out to you as a speaker. I don't know what the future looks like as an author <laughs> with a book to promote. What are, what are your yeah. thoughts about where you're headed in the future? These are all really good questions that I think we're all still <laughs> figuring out. Uh, I think one thing that works to my advantage is I have taught online at the college level for several years. So I am very comfortable with, you know, this new virtual environment that we're all finding ourselves in. I don't mind having video calls. I don't mind teaching and, and sharing and speaking via video. I think, you know, just a, a matter of seeing how our industry shifts and whether there's still appetite and, and budget for these kinds of things in the same way. I think we're all still waiting to waiting to see how that pans out. As far as the book, I mean, I'm hoping that I can just keep promoting it however I can in ways that are strategic and make sense and, and continue to add value. So, you know, continuing to look for new podcasts. If, you know, someone's audience might benefit from a conversation like this, you know, happy to join and, and share what I can. That would be helpful doing guest posts and things like that. And then I think just trying to see what are the new ways that I can, you know, deliver this kind of education. I think I have tried to be open to the different methods by, you know, practicing what I preach, I guess, the new formats through which I can deliver this kind of information, whether that does become a course or, you know, a book club or coaching, you know, whatever that, that might be an email subscription. I don't know, you know, just trying to evaluate all those different opportunities and see what's going to best serve my audience and help them, you know, again, just feel like more creative and, and competent storytellers. Yeah. So where is the best place to find all things, Melanie Diesel, the content fuel framework, story fuel, all the above? Yeah. So if you want to learn more about me and the work that my team and I do at StoryFuel to help people tell better stories, you can learn all about us at storyfuel.co. So it's not C-O. Um, you can find all of us there. There's links there to, for you to find the book, coaching, masterminds, all that stuff. So that's probably your best central place. And if you're looking for me on social, uh, I am the only one of me. You'll be sure it's me. It's Melanie Diesel, D-E-Z-I-E-L on whichever platform uh, suits you. Which is spelled different than Vin Diesel, right? <laughs> yes, yes. How often, how often do you have to explain that? Well, I, I always just say it's diesel, like the fuel. And people are like, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> it helps us remember. Well, I appreciate you uh, sharing with us today about your book. It is great. And I will be sure to link in the show notes where people can find more about you as well as the book. And I recommend it's a great way, as you said, I think, to stretch your thinking beyond your content language or your preferred content language and to think about different ways to share your story. So I appreciate you being with me today, Melanie. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for letting me come and share mine. It's time for you to get noticed, create change and grow your influence. Don't waste any time. Subscribe to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review. 